Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Nikita Kutino, visiting assistant professor of law at Duke University. We'll be discussing her forthcoming article, The Rise of Fringe Tech, Regulatory Risks in Early Wage Access, which is forthcoming in the Northwestern University Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Nikita, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show with you. Well, I was really excited to read this paper. I think it was about an interesting topic, something that I hadn't really heard about before. But uh, it's about this topic of early wage access programs that are available to workers in the U.S. I wonder if we could maybe start the conversation by kind of just touching on what are early wage access programs, who uses them, and who are the players in this market? It's a fairly new market, I take it. Sure. Yeah, it is. It's only been around a a couple of years, I'd say the last half decade. So early wage access programs, they're internet and mobile-based platforms that purport to transfer earned but unpaid wages to users in advance of standard biweekly or monthly paydays. So generally, the programs first collect payroll and timesheet data to estimate the amount of net wages that have been accrued to the date of transfer, and then they make all or a portion of such amount available for transfer. And so there are two broad business models currently used. So I break the first down into two segments of my project. The first is an employer-sponsored model, as I call it, wherein the program partners with employers to obtain payroll data. And in a minority of instances, they transfer money from the employers to the users to fund the transfer. In the majority of cases, however, the programs themselves fund withdrawals with their own capital and are reimbursed via payroll deduction or a pre-authorized electronic fund transfer from the user's bank account. Now, the second business model is the third-party model, as I call it, wherein the program obtains payroll data from the user rather than the employer. And in this instance, they always fund the withdrawal with its own capital and are always reimbursed via pre-authorized EFT transfer. So as broadly put it by one provider, the programs are set to operate like an ATM for wages. I mean, the cost of these services vary greatly, as do the pricing models. There are flat fees per transfer, subscription fees per month or pay period, and even no fee models that encourage tipping. When calculated into annual percentage rates to compare to loan products, early wage programs charge between 60% and 500% interest. And under some employer-sponsored models, these fees are subsidized or covered in full by the employer. Precise size of the market remains unknown. Researchers have estimated that over 18 million transfers exceeding $3 billion were made in 2018 alone. And such figures are expected to double in 2019. And so to contextualize the size of the market, that's about a 6% market share of the existing small dollar loan market dominated by payday lenders. And it's steadily growing with leading employer-sponsored programs like PayActive, Daily Pay, and Even, which have partnerships with major employers like Walmart and even large-scale human resource management firms like ADP Marketplace. And third-party programs are just as impressive. Among the most popular is Earnin, which has more than 10 million unique downloads and is regularly a top-rated app in mobile app stores. 
Now, the user demographic data is also limited at this stage, and empirical work should be done in this area. But judging from the employer partners, target market, limited program disclosures, and anecdotal evidence, it appears that typical users are in the low to moderate income brackets. Such users also make regular transfers, some reporting three transfers per pay period, and use the early transfers to cover non-emergency expenses like utility bills, commuting expenses, and food costs. And this makes sense because the target market is similar to that of payday lenders. So early wage access programs sound like they are a tool for people to shift in time when they get access to their wages. Uh, There can be always a misalignment, of course, between when payday comes, whether that's once a week or twice a month or once a month or some other frequency, and when their bills come up. It sounds a little bit, and you kind of analogize a little bit to the payday lending industry, which we have seen as a very large and mature industry. Are these programs just a new form of payday lending, or are they something different? Uh, And how are they regulated? And that's a million-dollar series of questions. I'd like to break that up first, starting about how they are regulated. So the market participants endeavor to distinguish themselves from payday lending, and for good reason beyond marketing and optics. Um, Payday lending is governed by state and federal lending law. And in contrast, early wage access programs have emerged under the regulatory framework for money transmission services, which is consistent with the view that these programs are merely transferring earned wages like an ATM service. So money transmission law is designed to protect consumer funds held in trust, prevent money laundering, and protect consumer non-public information. At the federal level, we have the Bank Secrecy Act, which mandates reporting and monitoring to protect against money laundering. You've got the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act of 1999 and safeguard rules by the Federal Trade Commission that work to protect consumer data. Otherwise, federal law is pretty light touch with respect to domestic money transmissions, particularly by services that do not store consumer funds like a prepaid debit card might. And at the state level, state-by-state licensing requirements and laws are aimed at ensuring services are solvent and otherwise protect consumer funds from fraud or loss while they're being held for transmission. Notably, the money transmission law regime does not regulate terms of service like price, transfer amounts, collection practices, etc. Such regulations emerge under lending laws, which aim to protect consumers against risk of over-indebtedness, undue loss, and privacy breaches as well. Specifically at the federal level, of course, we have the Truth in Lending Act, which compels uniform pricing disclosure to incent competition and enhance consumer awareness of credit costs. Other federal regulations limit things like wage assignments, establish maximum interest rates linked to state usury laws, or even establish distinct usury limits for loans to military personnel, that sort of thing. But at the state level, it's even more onerous restrictions on terms of service, including a variety of usury laws that limit the cost of credit, limitations on the number of back-to-back loans, late penalties, collateral collection practices, amongst other limitations. And as of now, early wage programs are not explicitly governed by this more onerous framework. Now, are early wage access programs a new form of payday lending? Well, that question is hotly debated, and this project attempts to answer it, or at least suggest that there are more similarities than not, or at least more similarities that people acknowledge. In my project, I identified five features of early wage programs that are found to pose significant risk to consumers in the payday lending context. 
First, early wage transfers are marked by a feature that has long been a de facto marker of loans, that is deferred repayment. The benefits being instant liquidity and costs, the reimbursement with fees, occur at different times. One of the consequences is that the use of early wage programs necessitate what we call intertemporal decision-making skills. That is, the ability to discern trade-offs among costs and benefits occurring at different points in time. Research shows consumers lack such skills, leaving them susceptible to anti-competitive and predatory market forces. Consumers may overvalue the present benefit of instant liquidity and overestimate their ability to repay the later cost. Thus, pricing, repayment, and default terms in loan products are particularly vulnerable to consumer disregard, underappreciation, or miscalculation. Second, early wage transfers are often marked by high costs. The costs range between 60 to 500% APR, which on the low end is an improvement on payday lending, but on the high end can be just as bad if not worse. Third, early wage access programs similarly permit transfers with limited underwriting. Now, to be fair, by limiting transfer amounts to earned wages, early wage access programs are an improvement on payday loans, which rely on old pay stubs to determine loan amounts and do not confirm the accrual of wages in real time. However, early wage programs still fail to confirm whether reimbursement on payday is practical. A user's ability to repay the reimbursement amount is not limited to whether their payday earnings cover the cost, but rather whether their payday earnings can cover the cost along with their other living expenses. Early wage programs fail to similarly make this assessment. Fourth, early wage programs have a balloon repayment within a short time period like payday loans. The balloon payment can easily exceed 25 to 50% of payday earnings, which severely inhibits a user's ability to maintain other expenses. This is a substantial research accumulated over more than a decade now suggests that these features in the payday loan context are associated with habitual use at high costs and worsened financial conditions for consumers. Specifically, consumers may suffer difficulties maintaining bank accounts, mortgage payments, or even solvency. And so while such studies have yet to be done on early wage access programs, I argue that the documented effects of payday loans likely foreshadow the effects of early wage programs since the two products are quite similar in function, if not in form. So it sounds like as a consumer of one of these products who sort of needs to shift wages into the future, maybe this new generation of early wage access programs might be some improvement over kind of the traditional payday lender that we might see on a physical street corner. But there are risks still certainly in place for consumers along with maybe that improvement in in benefit. Yes, that's correct. And I'd even say there are features that are unique to early wage programs that may even exacerbate some of those risks. What are some of those unique risks or features that are maybe new with early wage access programs? Sure. So this one, not so much new, but it had been regulated away and has now creeped back in. And that would be the innumerable price structures and the difference in, in pricing that early wage market has created. Again, as I said before, there are per transaction fees, there are subscription fees by pay period or monthly, and then there are no fee structures, but they encourage tipping. And it's really difficult to compare costs across these fee structures, which likely leads to anti-competitive inflated costs. One of the reasons for enacting the Truth in Lending Act was to create uniform disclosure across loan products in order to incent 
price competition and provide information to consumers to make the best decision. It's really difficult to do that in this market. Second, the employer-sponsored models that are reimbursed via payroll deduction result in exacting repayment terms that effectively collateralize a user's interest in their employment. There's no way to delay repayment, seek installment payments, or otherwise escape the arrangement absent leaving one's job, it seems. And these exacting terms may result in workers feeling beholden to a job that never quite pays enough as they try to, quote unquote, catch up the reimbursement. Now, this may result in an inefficient allocation of the user's resources and their freedom to switch jobs when ideal, or even in their freedom to make the right choice between which obligations to pay first in their host of expenses they have for just living. And finally, some programs may actually increase the cost of alternative credit. And this is just a theory I've come up with since early wage reimbursements really amount to a hidden priority creditor obligation in times of insolvency and bankruptcy, whereas the early wage program may be automatically reimbursed. If early wage programs are similar to payday lenders, repayment of the transfer amount would put early wage programs before the traditional order of priority for substitute services like payday lenders. And so this may result in traditional alternative credit providers to increase the cost of credit because they are now exposed to an increased risk of loss. So in this article, you've made an early contribution to literature for a sub-industry that's probably going to grow in terms of the regulatory attention that it requires. What issues should we be focusing on as these programs grow or develop over time? Has there been any effort to date to regulate them? And what do we need to be doing or thinking about on that front? Sure. I think... I think the focus should be in some way similar to the issues that we focused on with payday lending, and that is on the cost of these services, the user's ability to repay pursuant to the terms of the service, and their flexibility to renegotiate out of onerous repayment terms. I also think we should expand the focus, frankly, for both early wage access programs and the broader small dollar loan market that includes payday lending, to think of ways to graduate users from the fringes of the credit services market. And one way we might do that is to mandate credit reporting or reporting to credit bureaus, particularly since the repayment rate in this context is so high. Users could benefit from the boost in credit scores to facilitate easier access to low-cost credit services. We also need to address the bifurcated and inconsistent nature of state-by-state regulation. So even if deemed loans, on the extremes, some state laws are so restrictive as to ban early wage programs, while others are so broad as to subject consumers to all of the risk. Now, neither outcome would be ideal because there are some benefits to early wage programs yet there are significant risks that we should curb. And so that separately, the compliance costs of 50 state regulatory regimes might be too costly for early wage programs, which operate on business models intended for national scale. And similar to other financial technology or fintech services, early wage programs would benefit from a uniform regulatory regime, whether at the federal level or a uniform law offered by the state. And finally, we just need to heighten consumer awareness that these products are actually similar in function, again, if not in form, to other small-dollar liquidity solutions like payday lending, um, and to proceed with caution. There are a number of stories in which consumers have noted that they clearly avoid payday loans, but they've been involved with early-wage programs and didn't realize the harms that they were going to end up in. And so greater consumer awareness around these products and their similarities is really important. 
a number of states actually have, we have a coalition of state financial regulators led by New York that have initiated investigations into some popular early wage providers for violations of local lending laws, including state usury laws. But they've yet to determine that early wage transfers constitute loans. There are a couple of cases in the California court system. So the California courts will soon opine on whether early wage programs, particularly earnings, should be governed by its state lending laws as well. That same state's legislature attempted to establish a framework for early wage transfers, distinguishing them from credit products and money transmission services, but that proposal has yet to be adopted. And at the federal level, the CFPB has proposed to regulate small dollar lending specifically, but they've specifically sought to carve out early wage access programs. That proposal has yet to even be adopted in full. And so there are a number of statutory, legal, regulatory interventions that are moving, but as they do, they are moving slowly and have yet to resolve the gray area in this regulatory game. Nikita, what key takeaways would you like our listeners to have from this conversation or from your article? Or what open questions do you see that still need to be answered on this topic of early wage access programs? Got it. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's so much that remains to be studied with this emerging market. This is one of the earlier analysis or critiques of it. So some open questions include just some empirical work on understanding the effects of the early wage product on users. Are they better or worse off than payday borrowers? Also, really a separate, maybe normative question, can the market really solve for the liquidity issues facing low to moderate income borrowers? Is this truly a timing of income problem or a sufficiency of income problem? And then really, how do we expand access to liquidity solutions while curbing high cost solutions that may be, and other features really, that may be detrimental to users in the long run. And so some of those questions I hope to answer and I encourage others to explore as well. But the key takeaway of this particular project is that it acknowledges that there are some benefits to early wage access programs that make the market worth facilitating, albeit with some regulatory constraints. Again, early wage programs can be less expensive in some ways, as evidenced by certain subscription-based features and employer subsidies that result in APRs being on the low end of the 60% to low triple-digit range. They also do a slightly better job of underwriting by limiting over-indebtedness to amounts that you've earned rather than estimating future earnings. Also, they provide consumers or users with a really easy liquidity solution that's pretty instant in the palm of their hands with their mobile devices and with very little questioning in the way of the use of funds. So it's convenient. So that is ideal for certain users. But notwithstanding these benefits, I think the major point of the project is to demonstrate that early evidence that I've gathered here suggests that consumers may unwittingly be exposed to risks that are not only substantially similar to those posed by payday loans, but potentially heightened in the context of early wage programs due to unique market and product features and the regulatory laxity that they currently enjoy. And so I just hope to highlight that and come up with solutions that curb these risks while allowing the benefits to move forward for the market. Our guest today has been Nikita Coutinho, Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at Duke University. We've discussed her new article, The Rise of Fringe Tech, Regulatory Risks and Early Wage Access, which is forthcoming in the Northwestern University Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Nikita, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.